Well, our goal is to move uh, as seamlessly as possible into the uh, afternoon panel. So um, um, while you're enjoying your coffee and dessert and other things, um, uh, why don't we get started? Um, the title for this panel is uh, The Ideal Basel. Uh, Swiss might say Basel de Ideal. Um, <laughs> And, and as we heard, the Basel is, a, uh, is an interesting um, uh, multinational framework that gives rise not only to capital standards, but also to recommendations when it comes to AML and anti-terrorism and other things, uh, many of which are of an aspirational character. Um, and one of the things that uh, I uh, noticed uh, as I was I was listening to uh, Senator Hagel was that uh, we have a bit of a luxury when it comes to the uh, Basel II. Uh, unlike uh, crisis modes that gave rise to uh, legislative uh, packages like Sarbanes-Oxley, like the USA Patriot Act, uh, like FIREA in 1989, uh, we have had the luxury of a largely uninterrupted spate of prosperity uh, for banks during um, practically the entirety of the Basel I regime. Uh, and so there is no particular urgency in jumping into anything. Um, and if we're going to move into a Basel II uh, in whatever uh, format, uh, we certainly want to try to get it as, as right as we can from the outset. Uh, and our panelists today will help us uh, in that process uh, by offering uh, their thoughts and suggestions on uh, how the current proposals might be improved, might be tinkered with, what are the strengths and weaknesses, um, and so forth. Uh, on the uh, description of the panel, we see a variety of, of uh, topics, including uh, possible competitive distortions between banks of different sizes, domestic-focused uh, banks versus international-focused banks, and then the various types of risks. Uh, I noticed that um, nobody mentions political risk uh, in any of these uh, lists of different types of risks. And yet, uh, if we're talking about internationally active banks, uh, our U.S. experience in many overseas loans certainly indicates that political risk uh, would be something that we would at least want to keep in mind as well. Um, on today's panel, we have um, Michael Roster uh, and um, Karen Shaw Petru and uh, Wayne Abernathy and Charles Taylor. And, they will present in that order, and it's my pleasure to introduce each of them, which I'll do uh, seriatim. Uh, I've known Mike Roster for over 20 years. We've both been active in the business law section of the ABA and the Banking Law Committee. Um, he has had a, a very interesting career, not only in the banking and SNL regulation, but also in the healthcare and higher education law. Until recently, he was executive vice president and general counsel of Golden West Financial Corporation World Savings, uh, which grew to a $130 billion uh, organization uh, that was ultimately acquired by Wachovia in late 2006. Uh, earlier in his career, uh, Mike was a partner in uh, Morrison Forster's Los Angeles office, uh, where he was active in the firm's uh, financial services practice and indeed co-chair of the practice. Um, and between 1993 and 2000, Mike did a stint as general counsel of Stanford University, Stanford Medical Center, and Stanford Management Company. 
He's been active in the Association of Corporate Counsel uh, and with uh, various startups, um, both within and without uh, the financial services sector. Uh, so please uh, welcome Mike Roster. Thank you. Um, the ideal Basel uh, is probably one, first of all, in my mind, that management, boards of directors, regulators, and the markets understand. If they don't understand it, it's a disaster. And I'm talking as one who has also been a director of several banks, outside director. And I've counseled boards as an outside lawyer. There is no better out-of-body experience than suddenly being the recipient of the advice you used to give. <laughs> and to sit there and realize all the things you used to say are the things you're supposed to do, and suddenly realize suddenly it's not happening. What is management presenting? What is this about? How long do you ask questions before it's impolite? But how long do you have to keep pushing it so you have a record that will sustain scrutiny someday? The ideal basil is also one that works that will not have horrible whoopsies after the fact. Now, I've given, there's some, uh, there was a handout. Unfortunately, it's fairly small in the text, but you'll be able to see it, or there'll be other copies available. Um, I think we've gone from an era of too big to fail, which was what protected a number of our banks in the past. People forget that Citibank, Wells Fargo, and many others were once bankrupt. Had they not been as big as they were, they wouldn't have existed today but they were too big to fail. We are now going into an era, and we are in an era, of too big to understand or too complex to understand. And one of the things to test to me of a capital regime, whether it's Basel II or whatever, is one has to understand it. Uh, on one of the slides, I presented just one of the pages of formula. I'm not an anti-math kind of guy. I used to like math. But you have to look at that and realize there are hundreds of pages of that. And if you're in the boardroom and you're presented that, if, by the way, this won't make it to the boardroom. By the way, it won't make it to the CEO. It won't make it to the CFO. It won't make it to almost anyone who is in the position of deciding what in the world's going on. It will stay at a middle management level and there'll be crisp one-page memos saying all is going well, sir. But the reality of it is this will all be judged in hindsight. And someday a CEO, a CFO, and boards of directors will be asked, well, the correlation said 0.12 times 1 minus X minus 50 times PD over 1 minus XP, but there's this factor of 1.5, and you'll see these other factors. How is it you were sure those were the right factors? <laughs> and I don't know how you answer that question. I truly don't know if someday I had to defend a board of directors, and in hindsight, it was what in the world were you people thinking? that I would know even where to begin with dealing with that. The problem is it's not just the math of it. You know, I wonder how many people have even read the literal text. It is extraordinarily hard to do. Another paper I gave you is what I call the Tower of Basel. We took a paper, it's only two years out, the uh, working paper number 14, it is, first of all, mind-numbing. I had to force myself to go sentence by sentence. You really have to say, I'm going to do this come hell or high water. But if, if you went through the old traditional American education as I did, you learned how to diagram sentences. Diagram the sentence. Force yourself to ask yourself, what is this really saying? And I'm going to take the last one on the page. It was the most mind-numbing and mind-boggling I'd seen. 
The decision whether to censor the data, paren, forcing the non-negativity of loss, close paren, or to use original data and the requirement on the RDS used to estimate the risk parameters are both important. If you diagram the sentence, first of all, you will find that the decision, the, the beginning subject, has nothing that follows. There is no decision that it talks about. What is much more interesting is whether to censor the data. As best as I know, censor the data means ignore what it's telling you. But, of course, no one will say it in plain language. Censor the data has a euphemism that just blazes right through you. Censor the data means ignore the data. Paren, forcing the non-negativity of loss, close paren, meaning deciding to ignore that there won't be a loss. Forcing the non-negativity of loss. How dare anyone write like that? It just offends my principles of grammar. But then you have to ask yourself, is that what they're really saying? The decision to ignore the data and thus not to take a write-down. Now, that is plain language. And if a CEO read that, say, well, wait a minute, what are you telling me? At some cases, the decision that I should ignore the data and not take the write down. Wow, that's a pretty hefty issue. You know, at most banks, you don't receive, and bear in mind, as general counsel of a major bank, you don't receive data and say, we're just going to ignore that data and we're not going to take a write down. You certainly don't have minutes being kept when you start making decisions <laughs> like that. All right, so the numbers tell it all, the language tells it all. You know, when you get things that are highly complex, and I, I, I hope most of you heard this morning's panel. It was superb. It told both the benefits and the weaknesses of Basel II. We, we Westerners are sometimes too binary. It has to be either or. I happen to believe both are true. There happen to be some very good benefits to it, and there are serious, serious problems. And some are there in our dialogue in America in particular, but much of the Western culture today. It's not possible to have a reasonable discussion, say, look, there's some good things and bad things. We somewhere have to be polarized. And, 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 but unfortunately, when you get to be too harmonious, you also don't put the point on the argument and you don't get anywhere. So sometimes that battle. But think of long-term capital management. It's the most important example. Extraordinarily bright people from Stanford, from other major universities, having known they could use data, they could predict the future, they could do extraordinary things, and they were shocked when the markets were irrational. They were, first of all, shocked that the data didn't quite predict the future as expected. But if you read the books about it, the most shocking thing to them is they had never anticipated the irrationality that sets in. And that is the defect of models at times. It does not take into effect the irrationality of a government, intervening, or bank regulators intervening, or all the other things. So then, having lived through several banking crises, you know, I put together some great big interstate companies through my career, and then at other times I had to bail out companies and individuals. And you may remember, after the SNL crisis, we put in prompt corrective action, we put in the leverage ratio, and it's actually fixed for thrifts. You have to understand, the statute would have to be amended to remove it for thrifts for other banks if the four bank regulated agencies agree it can be modified. People aren't paying attention to that. You need to go look at the statute to understand what really is at stake with the leverage ratio. But we also put into the statute a thing called institution-affiliated parties. And some of you may remember that the government then went after, in a, a reign of terror, against lawyers, consultants, directors, and officers to get them personally liable. Civil money penalties are five twenty-five thousand dollars per day and higher. 
All the people building the Basel models, and I remind them of this, are institution-affiliated parties. They have personal liability for what they're doing. Most of them don't have not been reminded of that. I actually think if a major bank fails, and I'm, you know, history says we're going to have some trouble sometime in the future. I actually think this time around people are going to go to prison. If you start talking about Basel, you have to start putting yourself to the real test. Are you really sure? If in hindsight it goes bad, are you ready to defend what happened? Are you ready to say that the board of directors really understood what was going on, that even the CEO understood what it was all about? And are you really going to in front of a jury if and when a trillion dollar plus entity goes down and they said we didn't know it was a problem, the model said it was okay, and when the data came forward that it wasn't okay, it was too late to do anything, how that, how that defense is really going to go. Now, as a lawyer, what would I do to protect my people? You know, there's a business judgment rule. The problem is if you're going to run your Basel model through the board of directors and you're going to have the business judgment rule, you've got to have them in front of the board. You've got to have the board asking smart questions. And maybe you have to hire a whole separate team as independent advisors to the board as to what to do about it. Remember, in Sarbanes-Oxley, another intervening event between Basel I and now, we're putting Basel II in now that there's personal liability for boards and consultants, and there's also Sarbanes-Oxley. Ask yourself what you have to do to prove up Section 404 control procedures with the model. Think about it. Who in the world is certifying the validity of each one of those formulae in the Pillar 1? Who is taking to the board and saying we have done the control test and it is in order? Who is vouching to the CEO that, yes, it's okay when you sign your certification, that this whole model on which eventually you're going to run this bank on, that it's in order. So this morning's panel already talked about the complexity of the model. I'm concerned about the disconnect between the model builders and the bankers. You know, the people building models are not the people who are going out making customer calls. They're, they're a different breed of human being. I was with some general counsels who were saying, we don't understand the guy building our model. Now, I thought he meant he was too mathematical. He said, no, 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 he's in this other nation. We literally do not understand what he is saying to us when we talk on the phone. A second general counsel said, oh, my God, that's our guy, too. <laughs> Which led us to a sort of Walter Mitty view that there's some guy sitting in some little village somewhere. He said, they're paying me hundreds of millions of dollars. for I don't know what. I send them these, these equations and they pay me this money. It is fine. And then they asked me a few questions. I answered. They don't know what I'm saying. And they say, well, thank you. That's very good. I, I, I'm overstating it just a bit. Because the CEO, the CFO, everyone who ultimately is running the bank has got to understand what is going on in this data. They know if they're seasoned bankers, where there have been problems in the past. They know where their particular bank, with its particular business model, with its strengths and its weaknesses, is going to be under stress. Are they really interacting properly to say, look, you know, we're really heavy in this area, but we're really not sure about it. We're the new entrant, so we're getting the less sophisticated customers, the riskier customers. We know that, assuming they're being honest with it internally, closed-door meeting. Is that really being translated to the people building this stuff? I have a slide that's called Pillaring On. You've heard a lot this morning about models, Pillar 1. Pillar 2, people banding about. Well, you see, we have supervisory intervention. 
uh, and I think it was George who pointed out, but are we really saying we want a situation where Pillar 2 gets activated? Is that really our line of defense, where the regulator out of the blue says, I'm worried, your neighbors are getting in trouble, I want you to double your capital today? Do you understand how terrifying that directive from the regulator is going to be? I lived through several banking crises where the boards were told that. The boards were running reasonably decent banks were told the economy's getting bad and several of your neighbors have gone under. We're just demanding that you raise your capital. And we argued with them. We said arbitrary, capricious and all that. But at the end of the day, you don't argue with your regulator that much. You try to do it. And pillar three, there's been virtually no discussion. Everyone says market forces as if this will cure the world and disclosure will help do it. Except my lawyer friends all want pillar three to go away yesterday. We cannot live in America with Pillar 3, they tell me. We cannot make the regular disclosures of where things are not going right and not immediately have the stock price go down a bit and then get hit with the standard class action lawsuit. So the lawyers behind the schemes are working vigorously to get rid of Pillar 3 in America because that kind of disclosure is way too dangerous. And all of you who are lawyers with the Federal Society and others, you know that. I talk about the League of Nations syndrome. It, it, we're, we're in the same place. We, we come up with a highfalutin idea. We go announce it, and then, by God, the world adopts it, and we decide maybe we don't want it. And it looks bad. Our head of our central bank, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, will look bad if he walks away. We count on too much of the world buying our debt to walk away. So even though some people at very high places know this is a disaster, they're unwilling to say it because there are too many other consequences. So it falls to us to potentially say this is really a potential disaster. Let me just take a minute. What happened is in the late 90s, some of our banks said it would be nice to have a slight reduction in capital for rated debt. In the United States, we rate debt. We have AAA debt, AA debt. We would like a reduction. Europe and Asia said we don't rate debt. We won't do that. Someone said, well, you know, we're playing with a model. What if we showed you a model for corporate? This is absolutely how Basel II got started, to the absolute what happened. What if we tried the model for corporate debt? Asia and Europe said, well, that's interesting. So our folks went off to Basel, started having very nice dinners. I mean, I'm not exaggerating when I say one of the first orders of business was where to have dinner that night. Truly. And the number of staff people who sat around. This was an actual wonderful thing. And so we went, though, from corporate debt to mortgages to somebody decided we need everything thrown in. We weren't ready for everything going. If you talk to people who are really going to be honest with you, we thought that the bond data we had on corporate bonds was going to correlate reasonably well with commercial loans. It turns out it doesn't actually correlate that identically. But at least there's some data on corporate bonds, and we thought that might predict banked up. Um, Karen and others may talk to it, but when you start getting to other areas, mortgages, particularly adjustable mortgages and all, we don't have data. Credit card, we don't have data that's really reliable. And as has already been alluded to, we've just been through 15 years of the most benign economic climate in a long, long time. That is real bad data on which to build everything. So we've been here before. I think a lot of people know there are a lot of serious problems here. But so far, no one's been willing to really say in the government to really come forward that the emperor has no capital and we have to fix it before it gets implemented. Thank you.
Thank you, Mike. Our next panelist is Karen Shaw Petru, who is the managing partner of Federal Financial Analytics, uh, which is involved in a variety of consulting services uh, to financial institutions, uh, non-bank financial services firms, as well as bank, government agencies, um, third-party vendors, and so forth. Uh, the company also publishes uh, various electronic information services on uh, matters of concern to the financial services inter industries. Uh, prior to founding the company uh, and its predecessor firms in the mid-1980s, uh, Ms. Petru served as uh, Vice President for Bank of America in its Washington, D.C. office, um, and she was also working on a doctorate in political science at UC Berkeley. She does have an M.A. from UC Berkeley, um, and of, of tremendous interest to me uh, is that at one time she danced with the studio company of the Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater, which, in my judgment, eminently qualifies her to speak about Basel II. Karen? Thank you so much. The varied experiences do bring one to the Basel Accord and um, to what the ideal one should be. a large German shepherd down there who, who's deeply interested in the Basel Accord. <laughs> Ideal Basel. Well, I think what we've been talking about to some degree is in a vacuum because ideal or not, and I agree with Mike that much about the International Accord is, if one could understand it, we're far from ideal, it is a reality. It is, it is in place, as Senator Hagel said, everywhere else but here. So I'd like to talk today about a U.S. response to this reality that I think will help to respond both to this current market conditions, some of which I think are the result of keeping Basel I in place too long uh, without due regard for the phenomenal ability of financial markets not only to innovate, but to exploit every regulatory weakness, what is called regulatory capital arbitrage in Basel speak. But then also to suggest some ways that we may be able to move quickly to a new capital regime, call it the standardized option, Basel 1A, call it what you like, but that I think will give us a way forward that is not, as I think we run all too much danger right now, of letting the perfect be the enemy of the good, in that proverbial phrase. And while we seek a perfect Basel Accord, uh, we do continue to do nothing. It has been suggested, I know, that perhaps we should just keep the Basel I regime in place with its leverage requirement. But I think we will find that increasingly dangerous precisely because, as has been said, uh, the cycle is turning, and these rules are, are dangerous in that context. Let me explain why. First, to the, the market reality. As I said, Basel, I, Basel II is final everywhere else but here. Um, it's on a somewhat sliding implementation scale, but everybody is doing the standardized option outside the United States at some point this year with the advanced ones coming into play more gradually starting at the beginning of uh, 2008 with par parallel runs that bring it into full effect in two years thereafter. This is driving deals now. This is one point I really would like to make. Um, we talked a lot at the beginning of the Basel rules about the competitiveness issue. 
I well remember the first congressional hearing on Basel in uh, February of 2002 when the Fed tried to tell Congress that this was a great rule not to worry and it would have no competitiveness impact. When she said, why are we doing this, you know, if it has no meaningful impact except to make all of Mike's friends in the model builders richer than they were before. Uh, Congressman Frank at that point let the Fed know in no uncertain terms that he thought that was bunk. The Fed resisted for a while, but we are all on the same page now, I think. We know the rule has competitiveness implications. It was a driver piece of the driver for deals we've already seen in the United States. I think the Capital One Hibernia transactions and the WAMU Providian ones were in part driven by the Basel rules and expectations of the, the shape of those rules here and abroad. And if there were any doubt about the impact of the Basel rules, take a look at last week's Financial Times and see how it is cited as a driver for the ABN AMRO transactions. Importantly, a key piece of this is the role Basel II plays in consolidation. And I think we will see this as a, a trend in the international financial system and at home. And because consolidation is far from an unmixed blessing, I think we need carefully to think about the shape of the U.S. rules to ensure we preserve vibrant, smaller, and innovative institutions that are not, in fact, not only too big to fail, but probably too big to manage intelligently um, and to serve customers effectively. We need to keep that in mind. But again, we, we can't stay out of the fray. The fray is upon us. And if we as business people, as consultants, advisors to financial services institutions, don't take that reality into account, we will be missing a critical financial driver that is already evident in the market. Further, the role of the capital rules in the United States, I think, is evident not just in these transactions, but also in what we've seen because of the way Basel I has been in place, even as the market has evolved. A question was asked earlier about subprime mortgages, and I think it's really critical to understand the role Basel I has played in the vast uh, acceleration the dramatic increase in the um, number of non-traditional mortgages, subprime, i.e. high-risk paper. Why is that? Well, under the current capital rules for a U.S. bank or savings association holding a, well, let me see, an interest-only 40-year mortgage with uh, uh, a hybrid arm, teaser rate, so, you know, started to go to 10, to a, to a borrower with a credit score of, I don't know, 520. I could think of some other things, but that's, I, I think we'll all agree that's a fairly toxic mortgage. Um, that carries right now the same regulatory capital as a AAA bond to General Electric. It's 100% risk-weighted. Further, we have a leverage standard, a 5% requirement. So I can hold that position and be well capitalized with capital that by any measure of whatever the economic capital allocation is about a third of what it ought to be um, from an economic capital allocation point to take a view of the risk. So, of course, I will do that. And you've seen the market flip dramatically. Safe mortgages have gone out of the banking system to Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, and into the secondary market because they are permitted under their applicable market capital rules to hold those loans with far smaller amounts of regulatory capital as befits a lower-risk asset. 
higher risk paper has conversely flooded into the banking system because, you know, what me worry, we have a capital regime. So I think we need to be mindful of this. It has had significant adverse prudential and financial market implications already evident in the mortgage sector. I think we will see it in others as well, particularly if the economy softens uh, as we're beginning to see in some of the other retail finance sectors. I know Basel II is very problematic, but I think Basel I is worse. The longer we keep it, the more incentives we build for low-risk assets to go out of the banking system, high-risk ones to be developed and stay in it, more and more complex financial engineering largely based on capital arbitrage strategies that make regulators head spin and will have, I think, some very dangerous consequences down the road if we don't start quickly to catch up. So how do we do that? I think we move very quickly to those parts of the Basel Accord with which most of us, I hope, will agree. Uh, a regulatory friend of mine calls this the low-hanging fruit approach. I think that's a good way. Is that Basel 1A or the standardized option? All I know is it's something other than what we have now in place. I tend to think it may be either Basel 1A with some fixes to bring it more into accord with the standardized option or the Basel II standardized option addressing certain key factors in the United States. For example, the Basel II mortgage rules are intended to reflect the far simpler, more standard mortgage environment that exists pretty much everywhere else but here. The simple 35% risk weighting for most mortgages in the standardized accord is not, in my view, appropriate for the type of mortgage I described. Similarly, the other, some of the other retail capital charges do not reflect our sophisticated and, and happily far-reaching retail financial market, nor, on the other hand, some of the more sophisticated complex instruments we hold. So we need to think that through, but not too hard and not in too much detail. We need to move forward on something as simple as we can, as quickly as we can, because the longer we wait, it's not just that we will be left behind internationally, as Senator Hagel has suggested, and there will be big deals done based on that, um, but also we will be taking still more risk in the banking system. What else leads to the risk? Right now, I think the leverage standard is a real problem. I know Mike and I have disagreed about this for years, so we'll keep disagreeing about it, but I think the leverage standard is a real reason why we see high-risk assets in the banking system, because it's the only way to make capital make sense. You put in a layer of toxic waste, and all of a sudden, your low-risk book comes up to that 5% number, and you look well-capitalized. Importantly, also, the leverage requirement drives consolidation. With that requirement, if I am a small institution and I want to specialize in low-risk assets, I cannot do it. Under the Basel I rules or the, even the Basel, uh, without the Basel II, the risk-based rules, with a leverage standard under Basel I, I, as a small institution, specialized institution, are pushed out of low-risk assets. I must diversify to make the leverage requirement make market sense, and therefore I am either bought or I take on more risk to make that number make sense. And I do not think that is the goal we should have in mind for the financial system. Finally, 
as a piece Mike mentioned correctly, pillars two and three, let me mention one piece of pillar one that hasn't, I think, come up before, and that's the operational risk-based capital charge. The complexities that Mike mentioned on the credit side are amplified, worsened um, tremendously on the ops risk side because nobody yet has agreed on how to measure operational risk or capitalize it. There is some talk. There are some models. All those, you know, geeky model builders are out there spending millions thinking this through and yippee. But um, there's no agreement. There should not be a capital charge for operational risk until there is better agreement on a simple approach to it. And in the United States, competitiveness problems will ensue if we implement one, because unlike the EU and other nations, we cannot, under law, impose the Basel rules on non-banks. Most of the major players in the asset management arena are in non-banks, and you can bet they're going to stay there with this ops risk charge in place. It will drive fee-based business out of the banking system, and to the degree that we come up with a capital rule that creates a capital incentive, first to drive out low-risk assets, and secondly to drive out fee-based lines of business like advising customers into the non-banking sector, I think we're going to end up with a banking system we don't much like that doesn't serve us well. So an ideal Basel, I think, is a speedy Basel. It is a better Basel. It will never be a perfect one, but I do think we need to move quickly and put Basel I to rest um, in the not-too-distant future. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you very much, Karen. Um, our next speaker, <coughs> forgive me, is uh, Wayne Abernathy, who is uh, the Executive Director for Financial Institutions Policy and Regulatory Affairs at the American Bankers Association. Um, before uh, joining the, uh, the ABA, um, Mr. Abernathy served as uh, Assistant Secretary for Financial Institutions at the Treasury under uh, current president uh, and received the Alexander Hamilton Award in recognition of his service. I hope that didn't mean you had to take a bullet. Uh, um, <laughs> um, Prior to that, as, as we've heard from Senator Hagel, he was uh, staff director of the Senate Banking Committee under uh, former chairman Phil Graham. Uh, and he had extensive experience at several positions uh, in the Senate Banking Committee, uh, having started there, I guess, during the early 80s uh, as an economist uh, for one of the subcommittees. Um, and he will provide us with uh, his perspectives on uh, what, uh, what's actually going on in the industry and what many people in the industry are thinking. So, Mr. Abbott. Thank you very much, Professor Fisher. It's a pleasure for me to be in this gathering with you here today as I was thinking about uh, this subject matter and being here at the Federalist Society. It occurred to me I, I cannot think of a better example of the virtue of our Federalist system than the American banking system. Our dual banking system is a direct product of our federal system of government. And because of that, we lead the world in terms of innovation in quality of product, quantity of product, and, and the variety of different uh, services that we provide. And, and we do that because we have a banking regulatory system that's federal-based, based on the national uh, government, based at state governments, and the competition between the two. And it's that competition that gives us a lot of good benefits if you're a consumer and as well as for the industry. I'm also glad that there, we're having a discussion of Basel. Uh, I think someone earlier this morning pointed out that 
This is a very important issue that is probably one of the most significantly ignored subjects here in town. In fact, not only just here in town, I was at a bankers convention last year and I was still fairly new enough to the uh, the banking trade associations that I could ride on uh, the, the bus to the the airport fairly anonymously. And I heard a couple of bankers chat and they said, how'd you think of the conference? Well, I thought it was great. I'm glad they didn't talk about Basel again. <laughs> Now, just earlier this year, I was asked as we begin the year, reporters will ask, well, what do you see as the big issues this year? And I unhesitatingly will tell them the significant, most significant issue for bankers this year is Basel Capital Rules. I can think of nothing more important to a banker than the rules that govern his capital. That's the foundation of his business. And yet it's fascinating to me how uh, significant an issue it is and yet how uh, little... Uh, it is often paid attention to. And I, I work for a trade association that represents the whole industry. We have banks that are 15 million in assets uh, as members. We have banks that are uh, measured in the trillions of dollars in assets. And we have everything in between. And so a real challenge for us has been how to deal with the whole Basel issue. And what I wanted to talk about today is how we as an industry have been coming to grips with this whole capital exercise. Uh, begin uh, by by the recognition that the old Basel rules, as Karen, I think, presented here very powerfully, don't work. They're broken. And maybe they worked for a while. I think the key principle of the of Basel one was the recognition that maybe we ought to have some kind of similarity in capital standards across the nation for across the world for financial institutions that compete with one another so that investors might have some way of comparing one another and some. Uh, standards. Now, that was the concept. It wasn't realized in reality, but that was the idea of what got Basel one going. Uh, it, in, since then, we've had uh, developing some of the problems, such as a mismatch of capital and risk. Uh, these are serious, fundamental mismatches that have very significant financial inefficiencies of how we allocate capital, how we use our finances, as well as some very stru serious structural problems that develop over time. Uh, and we have, frankly, the, uh, the concept of having this unified international system increasingly falling farther and farther short in practice so that people recognize we really don't have an international set of standards at this point. Uh, and a good example of that was, frankly, what happened to the Japanese banks under Basel I and how very different their experience was from uh, banks in the United States under Basel I that also went under significant financial stress. We got through that stress very quickly. The Japanese decided, let's perpetuate it for a decade and see how that works. <laughs> and, 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 and the results, of course, were, were very telling. Now, the goals for the new Basel II, I think, are the following four have a better match of risk and capital. Number two, try to have for comparable products and activities a comparable risk treatment. I don't say exact because you really can't get exact, but something that's roughly comparable. Third, have a balance of cost and benefit. That is, don't have the cost of doing all of this outweigh whatever benefits there might be. And there was the belief as we entered into this process that it was going to be worth it, that it was worth doing. And the fourth point uh, have a capital regime that in the, the regime itself does not create competitive imbalances among classes of banks. 
And there was clearly the recognition that we had a system that was doing that, creating competitive imbalances, not only with our industry versus other industries, but also among different classes of banks. Those are the four goals I want to explain. And, and I'll give you, I think, my, my bottom line right up front, why I believe that a menu of capital options is the best way to meet all four of those goals. We didn't start out that way, at least not here in the United States. The idea was basically that you should have one set of capital standards and that should apply to everybody. And that was the idea behind uh, Basel One, as applied here in the United States, and basically had been our thinking about capital uh, amongst our various regulatory agencies. We are now at the verge of replacing that with the concept of having a menu of capital options uh, based upon the particular uh, condition, complexity, lines of business that your bank might be into. Well, there were difficulties for the U.S. industry almost from the start of the whole Basel exercise. Uh, and that the first of all, uh, the first issue was the cost benefit. It became very clear right off that the cost of implementing this new system was going to overwhelm the benefits for at least significant parts of the industry. And you had all but the largest banks saying, help, please don't put us into this system. And one of the first steps taken by the regulators to avoid rebellion here at home was to say, no, we only intend this Basel II exercise to apply to the largest internationally active banks on a mandatory basis. And then anybody else who wants to come and play, they can come and join, too. And that was the result of dealing with that cost benefit issue early on. And because of that approach. That necessitated, in effect, the decision by the regulators, we're only going to deal with part of Basel. We're only going to deal with the advanced approaches, since those are the only banks that we're inviting into this game. And so we focused on only one of the key options that was available under the overall Basel approach. Well, that developed competitive imbalances. It wasn't very long before the large banks were saying, this is going to be really good. We're going to be able to have our capital match our risk. And we think that we've been carrying more capital than our risk really uh, justifies. And so we think we we'll have the opportunity to reduce our capital. And a lot of other banks were saying, so you're going to lower your capital so that you can compete internationally. And then with that lower capital, you're going to come and compete with me in Cincinnati. And that's the only place I do my business. I got that pretty well figured out. You're going to be able to compete for the same loan with a lower capital charge. Over time, I know who's going to win that competition. And the second thing is you're going to discover I got a lot of capital in my bank that if you had that capital, you could do more things with it. And all of a sudden I have a premium on being acquired. And so I see what kind of dynamics that can set up. Help save us. And you had a lot of banks going to Capitol Hill and saying this isn't good. This is a very bad thing for the American banking system, unless you want to have a concentration in just a few banks. The solution, the regulators said, OK, how about if we take Basel one and we bring that a little bit up to date? We won't make it as complex as the advanced approaches, but we'll create this Basel one a make it more granular, make it representative of risk, but more appropriate for smaller banks. So that was. Now, at that point, although I don't think people recognized it, we had entered into the menu approach. We actually had three elements of the menu on, on the table. I think the regulators were thinking we only had two at that point. You'd either be a Basel 1A bank or you'd be a Basel 2 bank. 
Well, there were some new issues. <clears throat> the regulators continued the process of doing Basel II. They ran some models of their own, and they developed, at least some of the regulators, a real serious lack of confidence in what they were doing, especially the FDIC, but others as well. And with lack of confidence in the models, the result was, you know, you talked about this business of lowering capital. We're not sure we like that. Remember, we never said anything about the leverage ratio. The leverage ratio is going to be there regardless of what you do, which option you take. And the largest bank said, so I get to go through the exercise of creating the advanced approaches, which is a multi-million dollar exercise for my bank. And at the end of the day, I get to keep the same capital. Yep, that's pretty much it. Well, the cost benefit balance now had just been upset. And so then you had a lot of banks saying, "Okay, that's not working for me. Um, What's the solution? Well, there wasn't much of a solution. At the same time, another problem arose. And that was the smallest banks were now having conversations with the regulators about Basel 1A. And they said, you know, I'm not sure I want to do this Basel 1A thing. It doesn't fit what I do. Can you just leave me alone? I only operate in southeast uh, Paducah, Kentucky. I got two branches there. I'm at 13 percent capital right now anyway. Um, I don't need to have a risk based system. It just doesn't work for me. The regulators said, absolutely not. We cannot have a system in this country of more than one set of capital standards. Already had two, but they were resistant to the idea of, of doing that. That was their initial push as uh, pushed back. As time has developed, though, that I think the regulators have come to accept the idea that that actually does make a lot of sense. Now we're to definitely three menu options on the table. Basel one, leave us alone. Basel one a for those who don't want to go into the Basel two area. And then the uh, the advanced approaches for the largest banks. Well, the largest banks hadn't given up. Uh, they recognized the cost benefit wasn't working for them. Uh, they're recognizing that that's also going to upset the matching of risk to portfolio. And you're, you're frustrating, apparently, almost all of the benefits. At the same time, some of the mid-sized, mid-sized uh, uh, banks, the major regionals, they were looking at 1A, especially when 1A was published, and they're saying, I'm not sure that's complex enough for me. I, don't, I know I don't want to do the advanced approaches. But Basel 1A is still pretty simplistic for my bank. I'm a 40, 50 billion dollar bank. I do a lot of different things. I'm not sure I want to go into Basel 2, especially now that I see what you're doing with that. Well, the solution for them was uh, the fourth menu option. How about that thing that everybody else in the world seems to have and that we took off the table? Can we bring it back on the table? The standardized approach. And we convinced the regulators at least put that question on the table. The regulators said, we don't want to go there. We don't want to do the standardized approach. We took that off the table right from the beginning. We don't want to bring anything back on. Well, I think we convinced them. Well, at least ask the question. So they've asked the question. As time is going by, I think we may be getting to the point where you have a lot of banks saying that might be the answer. The standardized approaches. Now, the standardized approaches, by that I mean off-the-shelf standardized approaches. What we've done with some of the other Basel uh, principles is we've taken them and then we've played with them. And in the process of playing with them, we now have proposed final rules. 
for Basel II advanced approaches that no large bank, except for one, I've, I, I'm aware of one bank that's just, they're so frustrated with the whole thing, they said, we'll take, what, take it, whatever it is, just have, have done with it, we'll do it. A lot of the other largest banks are saying, that does nothing for us, it's all cost and no gain. And it gets in the way, frankly, of our own complex models, of having to follow the regulators' models. We'll do our own models, which we think match the market better, and we'll also do your model, which is kind of irrelevant, but it's all cost. You have the other banks for whom Basel 1A was designed. They've now seen the product. We cannot find yet a bank that says, I like it. Uh, we have whether smallest or the ones in between. And many of them are now saying that standardized approach might be the answer. We would like to suggest that having these four items on the menu, the advanced approach, and I think there are advantages to have that and go formally with that approach, if only to keep face, safe face for the Federal Reserve and to show to our international partners, we're still in there, but you've got to make it optional and have as an option the standardized approaches so that those who aren't committed that that is meeting the basic purposes of Basel to begin with can take the standardized approach, rely on their own models to manage their risk, and then for the folks in between in the middle can, absorb, can take the standardized approach as being a better fit for their options. And the smallest banks can have, uh, they can be left alone. What does that do? That gives you, these are rigorous models, these are real capital, but it gives you, I think, a better opportunity to meet, once again, the four key elements that we began with. A better match of risk to capital. A better opportunity to have comparable products and activities having comparable capital standards and practice. We can once again resurrect the balance of cost and benefit. So where a benefit outweighs the cost. And you can have a capital regime that doesn't pick win winners and losers. The capital itself is neutral with regard to classes of banks. Uh, that's where the banking industry is today. The regulators are not there yet. The regulators didn't want 1A to begin with. They didn't want to keep one left as an option. We hope that if we can continue to make that case, that maybe that is the way we get to the ideal Basel in the best of all possible worlds. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Wayne. Um, our final panelist is Charles Taylor, who is Director Operational Risk at the Risk Management Association in Philadelphia, where he oversees the development of the Operational Risk Management Program. Um, until 2002, uh, Mr. Taylor was the Managing Director for Strategy Development and a member of the Senior Management Team of Depository Trust and Clearing Corporation in New York, uh, and prior to that, he was the head of global risk management uh, at uh, Anderson Consulting. Uh, he began his career at the World Bank in the 1970s. Um, he is a product of uh, the British education system, uh, as you no doubt will be able to tell. Um, and, uh, but he promised me he would not use any more cricket illusions uh, now that baseball season has begun. Uh, he has authored a, a variety of uh, studies and has spoken widely on policy issues such as this, so please welcome him. Thank you, Keith. Uh, thank you to the Federalist Society, and thank you to you individually for still being here. Um, I, uh, I'm reminded of, uh, I think it was Andrew Wiles who solved Fermat's last theorem. 
um, who, um, according to the book of that title, had uh, at one point thought he'd figured it all out and wanted to present it to one of his fellow professors. In, and he therefore uh, designed a course with some immensely complex sounding title, uh, you know, asymptotic optimization processes for something or other using Kolmogorov's uh, simplest theorem. And um, he attracted seven graduate students in his first presentation with his friend there too. His first presentation, first, first class, was so boring that all seven of the graduate students left and he just had his friend left and he then presented his solution to uh, Fermat's last theorem over the next few lectures and uh, validated his thinking and uh, he wanted to do it in private I mean the point was and I feel that about that sometimes with Basel it's a perfect co- topic for a totally private conversation <laughs> nobody will burst in on you um, I, I guess we've had uh, at least a couple of explanations of why capital is important and why, therefore, capital adequacy standards of some kind are an important feature of a public policy regime and a regulatory regime in, uh, in banking. And I guess I buy them. I think, by and large, we do need to have some kinds of capital standards. Uh, probably we need to have them more than we did in the past. Um, and this is tricky because uh, the more rules you layer on banking, the more likely you are to stimulate disintermediation and thereby make the banking system less relevant. However, you do need them because we're in a, fast, a faster-moving world, a more complex world, a more technologically sophisticated world with lots of innovation going on, and it's becoming very difficult to judge quite how interconnected it is. So, um, I think, by and large, it's a more dangerous world. Even though we have had uh, you know, peaceful times for a long time in the banking system, and even though we have quite a lot of self-confidence in the banking system, or maybe because we have quite a lot of self-confidence in the banking system, I think we live in relatively dangerous times. And there's a sort of piece of, of um, theory, not in the banking world, but in the biology world and in the operational risk world, funnily enough, about um, uh, complex systems, modeling complex systems, that says if you want to avoid having a systemic collapse, one of the things you want to do is to have buffers that insulate parts of the system so that in the event that you have a failure, you don't have a very strong contagion effect. And funnily enough, capital is just such a buffer because if you have well-capitalized institutions one of them fails, those that are in its immediate proximity are less likely to fail as a result of having their own capital buffers. So capital is important um, in in, uh, more ways than we normally talk about it. I can't help saying something about models. Models, I I don't think you did mention it, but I'm a mathematician by background, and I love models, and I I think models are great, um, are actually very important. Models are just a way of thinking. And there are good models and there are bad models. And just as there are the odd occasional lawyer who's difficult to follow, there are the odd occasional modeler who's difficult to follow. But it doesn't mean that the modeler is an idiot and it doesn't mean anything like that about the lawyer necessarily. It just means they're not very articulate. And I agree with you. I get terribly annoyed by people who obfuscate and use uh, uh, words that are inappropriate and, and generally louse up the English language. Um, and, but I do do it for lawyers as well as mathematicians. I, I'm, I'm Catholic in, in my scorn. Um, 
So um, the point is that there are good models and bad models. And uh, our problem is, at the moment, I think in the case of Basel, we've got, we actually embedded deeply some rather bad models. They were good models five years ago for, or maybe even ten years ago, they were very good models for running a bank. But there are bad models today for running a bank, and also they've all along been bad models for regulating capital. Why is that? Because if they were ever good models, they were only good models for, for running a bank, and it's not the business of regulators to run banks. That's not what they should do. I don't think, um, in this day and age, senior bankers are, uh, should be let off the hook when they say, I don't understand a mathematical equation or two. <clears throat> I think it's a requirement for senior bankers. They do need to. Um, I'd hate to think that you had car manufacturers who didn't understand something about the internal com uh, 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 combustion engine. You know, it's a difficult subject, but I would hope they have a clue about it. <clears throat> and look, a couple of equations is not going to kill you. You've just got to get a grip on it if you're interested in finance. <clears throat> and running a bank and not understanding what an equation is is kind of hard to believe, but I do believe there are quite a few people. We do have that problem right now. We do have people who, don't, who can't do it, but they, they really need to get up to speed. And then we do need to encourage the modelers to, to um, speak English. <coughs> so um, if that's the problem, um, one, another problem is I think that we've tended to think about banks and the financial system in engineering terms. We've tended to think about it as though it was a machine. And at a certain time, that may have been an okay approximation. You know, I can change my credit exposure here, and uh, I can do that by pulling back on certain uh, kinds of exposure. I can sell off that part of the portfolio. I've reoriented the ship slightly, and I'm off in a different direction. Increasingly, that's an inappropriate way to think about banks, and it's certainly an inappropriate way to think about the banking system. In other words, we have completely the wrong set of ways of thinking about the models. And um, we need to borrow from other disciplines, potentially, and begin to think about diversity and flexibility, contagion and uh, fitness, to borrow from different disciplines, in particular uh, evolution. We do talk casually about the evolution of, of, system, of, of parts of the economy, but we, we don't do it rigorously. And there's a whole rigorous science out there to be... Um, pillaged, we can go out there and borrow those ideas. It is extraordinary again, if you think about it, that um, here in the 21st century we still use 19th century ways of thinking about organisations, basically. We use these engineering analogies as though these were great big machines. It's, it's very primitive. And in, in Basel, absolutely is the apotheosis of that way of thinking. It's not only that we think it, every bank is a machine, we think it's the same machine. We're crushing any diversity out of the system. We're creating a, 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 a global financial system that is incredibly homogeneous and incredibly rigid if we follow Basel II. So, what are we to do? I guess I like Wayne's solution. I'm with you. All the way to the bank, I hope. Um, I, I, absolutely, I like the idea that maybe the way... We need to finesse it. We need to find... A, a way around the rhetoric because there are a lot of entrenched positions around town in Basel itself which we sometimes forget is a place and in Europe in all the financial capitals there's a lot of, of emotional capital has been invested in this so finesse is called for here so my suggestion on the finesse line is that we should 
slightly downgrade Basel II and update the leverage ratio. Let's keep them both going. What we'll do with Basel II, essentially, is go run with the standardized approach and use the advanced approaches as a kind of guideline. So, as a regulator, I would go to a bank like Wachovia or City or any of the big banks and I'd say, okay, let's have a discussion about how you manage your risks. How do you calculate your capital? Here's what we laid out five years ago. What do you do differently? Why do you do it differently? So, it becomes a point of reference, maybe not even a guideline. It becomes one possible point on a range of practice that might be acceptable. It's a, something to talk about. Okay. So Basel II doesn't get thrown out of the window. There's some quite useful ideas, but we downgrade everything except the standardized approach and just make it into a guideline. Funnily enough, I think this is going to happen anyway. I don't think that uh, when it comes to it, the bank regulators are going to be able to enforce this stuff very strictly. The only fear I have is that the banks, the large banks, will actually spend a lot of money developing dual systems, which would be a big waste of uh, their investment dollars and more seriously, a big waste of their talent. When they should be thinking about risks, uh, they will actually be thinking about compliance. Um, and then how do we update the, the leverage ratio? Leverage ratio is basically a good idea, saying, look, we've got a measure of risk, which we think of as assets, and we've got a certain amount of stuff we use to manage risk, capital. Let's keep them aligned somehow. It's not a bad notion. But let me put you, it can be done in a more subtle way. And subtlety may be a very good thing to do in this circumstance when, really, honestly, I, as I mentioned in one of the questions before lunch, um, I don't think that the way we construct and think about the leverage ratio today is that relevant um, when banks can take on lots more risk without increasing their assets. Um, it, basically, the original notion of assets and risk and therefore capital and risk being related through the leverage ratio has gone out the window in the last 10, 15 years. It's just disappeared. It's, not, it's just not true anymore. Um, and I think it's, it's a sad thing that we've been so unimaginative about how to improve it. So let me tell you a little story and then um, generalize it slightly and then I'll be done. The, the little story is, imagine you are a bank and I am your regulator. And I come along to you and I say, okay, um, how much capital do you want to have? And you would generally say a small number for a regulatory capital number. So it was easy to be in compliance. So I suppose you have a $10 billion business. You have, let's say, I don't know, a billion dollar of capital that you have anyway. But you say, my standard, I'm going to guarantee you that I always have over $100 million of capital. And I say, okay, ah, but there's one catch. You are a 10% bank. And what do you mean by 10% bank? What I mean is that whatever number you choose for a capital threshold, I'll take 10% of that as a loss threshold. And if you get close to either the loss threshold or the capital threshold, I will uh, begin to take prompt corrective action. So we keep going with prompt corrective action. But so this particular national bank um, said they wanted $100 million worth of capital now. They've got to keep their losses below 10 million. That's difficult, especially if they don't measure the loss as, as you did today, which I think is the normal way of talking about it. Uh, but when you said that they lost 400 million, was it Bank of Montreal? I don't know what it would look like if you added the loss in their capital value, their market value as well, but I guess it would more than double it. Yeah, so you know, that, that pushes you out to perhaps three months of, of, or a couple of 
months at least of, uh, of earnings than maybe, it's a significant number. So depending on how you measure this, it can mean different things. But the basic point would be that you would argue, you'd say to this bank, if you're a 10% bank, now do you really want to be a $100 million capitalized bank? Say, oh, good Lord, I can't keep my losses under 10 million. I can probably on a good day, in a good quarter, keep my losses under 50 million. So, okay, then you've got to have 500 million in capital. Ah, now the margin between the actual capital you have and the capital standard are getting a bit closer and it's, a, it's an approach which is quite difficult to game. A bank can't game it because they've got to think about how tightly they can manage that volatility, their losses, as well as how, uh, how high they can keep their capital in order to avoid prompt corrective action. So this 10% ratio replaces the 10% leverage ratio. It's a modernized version of the leverage ratio, if you like. It's the ratio between the capital threshold and a loss threshold. That's the central concept. It's very, it has certain very appealing features to it. If this bank is really confident they can do a great job in managing their risk and controlling that volatility, they really can live with a low level of capital with a reasonable degree of, of confidence. Because they're saying, yeah, you know, I can, I can get by because I've invested a great deal in my risk management infrastructure. So you're allowing senior management in that bank to make a choice between the different kinds of investment they can, they can make in capital or they can make that investment in risk management. They can decide if I'm a small bank, you know, I don't want to invest that much in risk management, but I don't care about holding 13% capital. So it gives them a lot of choices to make and it allows you to have a, 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 a standard to that 10% rule may be just right for all banks. You may view it that way or you may decide, look, if it's a systemically significant bank, I want to tighten up slightly. And uh, for a, a, a bank that maybe is not so, significant, so significantly systemic, you might loosen it a bit. So you can have a debate about where you ought to set the standard for different kinds of institutions. So that's an updated version of the leverage ratio. And I think it's one that actually is uh, quite subtle. It allows banks to be as clever as they want to be about risk management. And that's what I would like to see us focus on in the United States. I think if we did that, we would find that in two shakes, the Europeans and others would want to do the same thing, which would be really neat. And I think in time, they too would find a way to make Basel II less mandatory and more of a guidance. Uh, they, they'd find they had to because they'd find they were at a competitive disadvantage from using the mandatory approach to Basel II in due course. And we would have maintained international harmony and peace uh, as well as, as, well as uh, a sensible approach to capital adequacy. And that's it. Thank you. Thank you. So we have some time left for questions. Um, Kurt? Um, this is a question, uh, question maybe primarily for Karen, but for, for others on the panel. Um, one of the messages that I take away from this panel is that uh, a, a need to move quickly. Uh, to uh, to get off the dime and to put something in place. I think Karen probably stated that uh, most strongly. And yet, if we take a look at, at how the Basel II process has been playing out, it has uh, uh, played out very slowly and certainly much more slowly than anybody anticipated uh, uh, five or seven uh, years ago. So my question is this. 
given how slowly it has moved, how bureaucratic it is, how invested the regulators in particular have become uh, in what has transpired already, how do you get the acceleration in speed uh, that uh, uh, is being uh, recommended here? That's a very good question, and I hate to suggest that the, end, the only way now is the way Washington usually mobilizes itself is in a crisis. Um, and um, I hope that isn't the, the way we do it, because then we'll make each of the Basel rules all the worse and have none of the time to think through the really good options that um, Charles and Wayne and Mike have talked about. Um, it may be a time for the administration, uh, the Treasury Department. Wayne, maybe you got to give them a call and get them back. And, and we have not had any leadership, and it has gone from bad to worse. Having been a, a, you know, practice in this area and been working hard on these rules since 1999, I will tell you, initially the big problem was that when you issue a proposal that's 300 pages long and with all the formulas Mike Roster said, what happens in every large organization is the 300 plus 700, one point this was 700 pages, they go thunk, 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 till they land on the desk of the poor bastard who has to read it. <laughs> and that is not a should we thinker, that's a how to thinker. And we've really gotten ourselves in this mess because all of the thinking, it's true at the regulatory agencies. You did not see Chairman Greenspan talking about the Basel rules. You, you never, it has been very much in this, boy, have I got a cool model and I can make it cooler mode of thinking till the very end somebody said, oops, but what about financial competitiveness and market structure? And I said, and blew it up. We have to bring it back to a leadership level to think clear thoughts, quick thoughts, and, and I think maybe it is time for Congress or the administration to help us do that. I'll follow up on that, uh, Karen. We had uh, Undersecretary Bob Steele at a banker's meeting about two weeks ago, I think it was. A very similar question was put to him, and he pointed out that Treasury had made the decision that it was time for them to now go in and be that uh, broker to bring all the regulators together. And they're doing that at a very high level. So I'm optimistic that uh, Treasury is thinking and actually acting to play that role. And I think they're the right agency to do that because none of the regulators will feel that Treasury has a particular axe to grind in favor of one regulator versus another and can uh, hopefully bring them together uh, by the kinds of people, as you mentioned, I like that. They're the should we thinkers as opposed to the how to thinkers. I, I guess um, I'm not normally a conspiracy theorist, but when it comes to explaining how Basel came about, it's really uh, a bit strange. Um, and I guess I put it down to two forces, which we don't normally let influence policy as much as they have in the US um, in this instance. One of them is I think European bureaucratic chutzpah. They were, they were riding on the back of having created the euro and that was almost entirely an act of extraordinary bureaucratic chutzpah between the central banks of Europe. Um, there were political pressures around it, but what an extraordinary achievement in terms of designing something out of whole cloth and making it happen and reshaping a continental economy. Um, an extraordinary thing to do. And I think they felt, hey, we can do anything. And the other factor, I think, was that the regulators and the, the quants amongst the regulators and the quants in the banks got together and they enjoyed talking to each other. And somebody senior said, uh, oh, they're just talking about a number. 
They're just talking about cattle. Hey, let them go off and figure out whether it should be you know, a billion or whether it should be 975 million. I don't care. That's neither here nor there. And they had no idea that they were proposing to rewrite how you run a bank. Mike, uh, Charles, uh, you couldn't see his mic was leaning back in the chair, but he's nodding his head very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, it, it was very much that. And the business of the U.S. only adopting the advanced approach, it, it was just meant for Citibank. The plan was it was only to apply to one bank and maybe Chase. And then it mutated that we'll add more. The, the thing is a typical example, and Charles has described it beautifully. It kept kind of going out of control. And Karen's point, it went to a how-to people instead of, well, what are we doing really? Oh. And are we sure about that? So it actually comes back to Wayne's point. It's time for policymakers to think about the larger picture to reassert some control and get it all done, put it together in some sensible way. I'm not an international lawyer, but my question is, is it a level playing field with implementation and enforcement of whether it's Basel 1A or Basel 2 versus how it's done in the European community? Isn't there a distinct difference? We're much more heavily overseen and regulated, aren't we? Well, I'll comment, and then others should, too. Yeah, this, is, this, is, this is actually preposterous. The, the reality behind closed doors is most people say Europe and Asia didn't want capital. Basel I pushed them into it, and Basel II is having the wonderful result is they don't have to have it anymore. And the Americans are fooling themselves with what they're doing, but let them play their game. Europe has very different accounting procedures. It has a very different regulatory regime. Europe and Asia, I mean, China, four banks that are all insolvent and maybe it will adopt Basel someday. Uh, and then you get to the issue, each European nation was given opt-outs. This hasn't been brought up here today. Each nation said, well, we can't live with it in these areas. Germany opted out, I think I'm right with Charles, with business loans. Yeah. Italy and France opted out with respect to certain housing loans. Every nation carved out what was particularly politically important, except the Americans. We sat there like, oh, this is, you know, we're just right, going right along. And then, uh, no, there, there is not an equal enforcement. This is, this is, and, and let, let's also point out, uh, in the 80s, my law firm, we represent a lot of the Japanese banks and the real estate companies, and everyone was saying, oh, my God, the competitive balance, look what's going to happen. America's being bought out by Japan. It's a disaster. And yes, the largest banks in the world were Japanese. America was labored, belabored with our complicated regulatory system and our capital. And look who, look who is at number one right now. We in the United States are Wilmington in this sense that when you drive north on I-95 between here and Philadelphia, uh, you'll find most of the way the speed limit is set at 65 and that you can in fact go at 80. Um, and everybody knows it but you also need to know that as you go through Delaware and through Wilmington it drops to 75 what you're allowed to do if you keep going at 80 you may get arrested we're Wilmington because we have a we take that 65 mile an hour speed limit which is the capital 2 capital standards uh, Basel 2 capital standards quite seriously we expect banks to adhere to it and if you don't there'll be consequences no one else in the world so far as I know has spelled out what the consequences of not making Basel II standards is going to be. And if you look at the way in which Europe administers all of the economic rules around convergence, in all likelihood, the consequences will be that there will be a waiver. 
So it's not, I mean, we have no idea what they're going to do if you get close to the speed limit in terms of capital standards in the rest of the world. We, we somehow missed that. And if, by the way, it has an impact on the economy and or the election coming up, Germany and other nations will fix it. And uh, Mike mentioned uh, institution-affiliated parties, and others have mentioned uh, prompt uh, corrective action. We also have a quaint little statute on the books, little used, but uh, could possibly be uh, uh, of interest to the regulators, called capital directives. Uh, and the nice thing about capital directives is that they're, based on the one decided case in the courts on capital directives, you basically have no right of judicial review whatsoever. Um, so um, since we know what the consequences of noncompliance can be in this country already, um, it, it raises the stakes considerably uh, for giving consideration to what we ultimately adopt. Well, we need the benediction. <laughs> um, thank you all for coming. Uh, it was a wonderful conference, wonderful, two wonderful panels, a uh, very complex topic that was made uh, accessible by uh, a series of uh, great speakers. And um, enjoy the rest of a lovely Washington afternoon. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.